Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Guys, I was wanting something a little bit more epic. Could we work on that for next week? And, and so, uh, well, good morning. Glad that you are here at Faithbridge. Whichever room that you are in, we're really glad that you're here. An epic lead into an epic story. We're going Old Testament. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Esther. If you need a Bible, why don't you wave at one of the ushers in any of our rooms? They'll have Bibles that you can borrow or you have one if you'd like. And we're going to dive into a biography or to a character study. And you know, the great thing about character studies and biography is that we can learn so much from the people's lives who've come before us. People who've got it right, people who've gotten it wrong. You can learn either way from looking at their stories, can't you? And I think that's what we're going to discover as we uh, dive into this book of Esther this Sunday and for the next three Sundays to come. Let me give you a little background before I read chapter one to you. So uh, the star uh, of the show is Esther. Well, really the star of the show is God, but, but Esther is the name given to the book, which incidentally is only one of two books in the whole Bible named for a woman. It's a book that's jam-packed with all sorts of drama. Kings, queens, wars, deceit, a lot of sex. But um, you have to understand what was going on. So Esther is a young Jewish lady, and apparently she was just drop-dead gorgeous. And she's living in this godless place. And in fact, her where she was living was so godless, the times were so godless, that this is the one book in the Bible that doesn't even mention the word, the name God, which is not to say he's not active, quite the contrary. You see as you work through the book, wow, he never had his hands anywhere but right on the steering wheel of time, and he was guiding his great plans forward. Uh, providentially, even though you can't see it at every turn in the story. But then when you get to the end, you realize, wow, 
he was really in charge the whole time, which I think is a good word for us in our own personal lives in the world to remember we have a God who is sovereign over all things all the time. So backing up, 100 years before the days of Esther, you had this king who was called Nebuchadnezzar. You remember he and his troops, the Babylonians, rolled in on Jerusalem. They conquered uh, the Israelites. They kidnapped 10,000 of the brightest and the best, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, who we, uh, who we studied a couple of years ago. They carted them back to Babylon to try to get them to forget their Jewishness and have them intermarry and everything. The Babylonian Empire went on for 50 more years after the book of Daniel and those scenes that I was just describing there. And then every empire gives way to another empire. The Babylonians are conquered by the Medo-Persian armies who come rolling in and they take uh, over and conquer the Babylonians. Now, interesting thing about the Persian king, he says to the Jewish people right off, by the way, Jewish people, you can go back to your homeland. You can go back to what we call Israel today. You can go back if you want to. Well, some of them would go back in a series of pilgrimages led by people like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. But a number of them said, nah, we'll just stay in Persia. It's all we've ever known. I mean, it was our forefathers who were carted off here in a different land. And, and, but, but, you know, this is home for us, so we'll just stay. So the story picks up right about 485 BC. And it's going to isolate in and talk to us about what happened to those Jewish people who stayed in the land of Persia, which today is Iran. Let's look at it. Esther chapter one, verse one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes that's the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the, city of, in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of his provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen, purple material, silver rings, marble pillars, gold couches, silver, and on and on. Verse 7, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered... The king's message, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious 
and burned with anger. And since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the kings, to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of the king, Xerxes, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against also all the nobles and the people of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they'll despise their husbands and they'll say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and the media women of, the no of nobility who've heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end of disrespect and discord among the women. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let the decree be written in the law of the Persians and the Medes, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter into the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to somebody else who is better than she. And then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this, his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. And so the king did as Mamukin has proposed. And he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Well, that's interesting. So <clears throat> I wonder, have you ever been to a party that lasted not six hours or six days, but six months long? Now that's a party. That's what King Xerxes was hosting there for all those dignitaries and those officials who spanned his 127 provinces that extended all the way from India over to Northern Africa. Now, just so that you can understand, to be clear, this wouldn't have been a party that lasted 180 days straight for every person who came. For every person who came, it would have been a few days or a week, sort of a come and go sort of thing because all these guys had to get back and they had to run their provinces. But over the course of half a year, King Xerxes was wanting to entertain all of his nobility, anybody and everybody, bring them in close to him, into the palace to show off his wealth, to show off his power. And the question therefore arises, well, why did he, was he just, did he just really like the party? And the answer is yes, he really did like the party, but there was something deeper going on. With credit to Chuck Swindoll, who helped me to see, you have to step outside the Bible to secular history to get this part of the story to connect the dots. But when you line up secular history with what was going on in biblical history, you realize, okay, so what was going on? Xerxes was consolidating all of his power base. He was trying to engender loyalty uh, because King Xerxes had in mind the Babylon, the, the Persians rather, uh, we're gonna take the Greek empire. That's our next frontier. And so he was trying to get all of them to come in to, to have utter confidence in his leadership, showing him all his power and all his wealth. And he wanted everybody to leave the palace saying, 
man, I'm I glad I am on this team because surely we will take the Greeks and we're going to expand this kingdom in no time. That's the deeper reason for what he was trying to do. You see, it was all about King Xerxes. Um, as a matter of fact, archaeologists in Susa have unearthed some inscriptions which the king referred to himself as the great king and even the king of kings. He didn't lack for any confidence. A little bit like Kanye West, who, <laughs> who said, my greatest uh, sadness, my greatest pain in life is that I'll never get to see myself perform live. And you know, I think King Xerxes felt a little bit that way himself. I'll never get to see myself perform live. Well, after partying for half a year, what more could you need? Except maybe a little rehab. How about another party to top all those parties, a seven day long party. This party, not for all the nobility from around the expanded kingdom, but from the citadel of Susa. That was his winter capital city. And he was gonna have people, not just a few thousand, but maybe 50,000 people from the greatest to the least. You come now to the palace as well for a final blowout seven day party. The men, they partied with Xerxes in one ballroom, and the women, they partied with Queen Vashti in another ballroom. But then in one of those pivotal moments that changes everything, on the very last day of all these parties, King Xerxes, in his drunken state, decides he wants to show off one more bit of his, well, of his prizes. He wants to show off Queen Vashti, who apparently was beautiful. And so he sends orders that she be brought to him wearing her royal crown. Now, scholars are a little bit divided on what did that, this mean exactly? Was he saying, come display yourself wearing a beautiful gown topped off with your crown? Or was he say, saying, come in here with nothing but your crown? I told you this was an interesting book. And so <laughs> either way, though, Vashti was aghast. And, and, and you have to understand why, not just for the reasons that you would be aghast, at the, at the, certainly the thought of the latter, but even the former, because uh, even as it is today in parts of India and certainly the Middle East, you, how do you see women dress? They cover themselves. That's nothing new. And so Queen Vashti, she would have been accustomed to being protected, kept away from the public eye, except maybe when she was at a private feast or sitting on her royal throne. But he was saying, I want you to come in here and I want you to be the gazing stock of men far and wide. And she refused to come. Scholars, again, are a little bit divided. Some say, well, surely she was she was not good. She declined the invitation because she knew you are not in your right mind and you're going to regret even having said that and you'd be embarrassed by it and I love you too much, I'm not going to do it. Or perhaps it was more with an attitude of disgust. No way. I'm not coming and doing that. Either which way, you have to respect that in that world, in that custom, with the way that women were treated, then she said no. I'm not going to do that. Incidentally, men, I hope that you understand uh, whatever the Bible talks about submission, 
biblical submission. Uh, that it has nothing to do with your wife becoming a sexual pawn or a sexual object of your lusts just to fulfill your gratifications. Uh, that was never God's desire for marriage, that, that, that your wife would just become nothing more important than just sort of an object, sort of like a, a toy that you throw to your dog. That's, that's not Christian understanding of marriage. I just thought maybe we should mention that. Well, Vashti, she says no. And at that point, King Xerxes' truest colors come bursting through, and he is livid. And <clears throat> you have to understand why. Because he's thinking, wait, 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 wait. This is not how the party to top all parties on the final day is supposed to come down with you saying no to me in front of everybody. Why, people might start to doubt whether I am all powerful, which remember was his strategy to get them to think just that so they'd follow him against the Greek empire. So what does he do? He does what every single one of us are inclined to do whenever we are not thinking clearly. He goes straight to some people, as you and I are inclined to do, if we're not thinking clearly, who we know will just mirror to us exactly what we want them to say. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah they had it coming to you, right? You ever done that? You ever gone to somebody who you know deep down, this is really a dumb thing, but you're seeking out somebody who'll tell you, no, it's really okay. And that's exactly what he does. Why go to somebody sensible? Why go to somebody with a cool head, with wisdom? Why go to somebody who loves God? When you're making crazy decisions, you gotta have some crazy counselors to justify it all, right? And, and so that's what he does. He goes to these seven uh, crazy guys who don't care anything about him. They care only for themselves. And the spokesperson is this guy, Mamukin. And he's gonna kind of muck it up. He quickly agrees with the king. And he says, oh, king, this is a terrible injustice that has happened here. What Vashti, oh my gosh, just just a matter of time now, all hell's gonna break loose. No telling what all the women of the whole kingdom are gonna do when they hear what your wife has done to you. I mean, we gotta slam this door closed and we gotta slam it with a flare, king. Here's what you need to do. You need to issue an edict that's irreversible. You can't change it. The law of the Medes and the Persians, you couldn't change. Saying she can never come back in your presence again. And then you go and you get you another queen, but never to be her again. That will send fear through the kingdom to the women and that'll show them. You better obey what your husband says. Reminds me of the woman, or rather the fellow who read a book called Be the Man of Your House. After he finished reading the book, he went storming into the kitchen and he announced to his wife, from now on, you need to know that I am the man of this house and my word is law. And so after right now, you make me a gourmet dinner. You're going to make me a sumptuous dessert. And after that sumptuous dessert, we're going to go upstairs and we're going to have the kind of intimacy that I want to have. And after that, you're going to give me a bath and you're going to rub my back and you're going to pat 
dry with a towel, my body. You're going to massage my feet and put slippers on my feet and put my bathrobe on. And guess what tomorrow? Tomorrow, who's going to get up and who's going to dress me and who's going to comb my hair then? To which his wife said, the funeral director. And so, as crazy as this scene sounds to us that Xerxes was engaged in, it actually occurred. The edict actually went out to all the kingdom that every man should rule over his own household this way. And sadly, that same edict still goes out in other parts of the world even today. Now, even as I've been talking about this, I know what any of you have been thinking. Uh, any number of you right now, you've been thinking, you know something? I know somebody just like King Xerxes. My gosh, I wish that, wish that person were here. In fact, maybe I could get him to listen to the podcast because it would really help him. You know, what I want you to realize is I'm not preaching the sermon today and you're not here today because I'm preaching it for somebody else or to somebody else or about somebody else. I'm preaching it for you and for me. Because you know what I've noticed? I've noticed as I've been studying that all of us have at least a little bit of King Xerxes inside of us. Oh, it might not be up to your neck, but it's up to your ankles or somewhere in between. So what I want to do is I want to go back and just retrace these four missteps that tripped Xerxes up. Because I think what you're going to discover is that any of us, all of us, are susceptible to any of these missteps. Go back and look, first of all, at the, at the two big goofs, the first two goofs. You have pride and you have lust, right? Xerxes, who just knew he was the greatest, the king of kings, he would call himself. And then this, this, this lust problem that clearly uh, was a part of his life as well. You know, I, I didn't really understand the connection between lust and pride until, well, some years ago. You have to go back to when Pastor Dan and I were in seminary together. We studied under a number of very good professors, but there was one in particular who was just particularly profound. Just to, you, we, students, we would sit and just hang on his every word. And it was, it was just, it was revolutionary. His insights from God's word were transformational. Never heard anything like that before. His insights from psychology as well were profound. And you'd leave his class every time just feeling like God was a little bit better than you ever thought you could even never been. And his word was even truer than you'd ever thought it would, had been. And that maybe by God's amazing grace, you were going to be a little better person and a little better pastor than you ever thought that you might have been. And so you can imagine how it was more than a decade later when, what, 15 years ago, Pastor Dan and I, firmly established in our ministries here at Faithbridge, he'd come over from Georgia to help me by that point. How shocked we were when a notice came out from the seminary, a news release, saying professor confesses to having engaged in an ongoing extramarital sexual affair. Dan and I were just, we were be bewildered. 
you tell him, this guy who would be so godly, I, how could that have been going on? It just, it, I remember I, I, I sat there across from Dan in his office and I broke down and just cried. And, but the statement that was released with the confession from the professor was revealing. It was insightful. He basically said, my success as a teacher and an author and a speaker brought such adulation my way that over the years my heart grew full of pride. And once my heart was overcome with pride, I felt I could do anything, which made it very easy for unbridled lusts to come marching right into my life, unimpeded. It was that day I remember Dan and I sat, sit, sitting in his office. We covenanted to just continue to make our confessions each to the other whenever we were, while ever we were still in the shallow end of the pool so that neither of us would ever wake up one day drowning in the deep end. As a matter of fact, that night I went home and I even typed up a covenant that I carried with me every single day since the summer of 2005. Just a, a personal covenant to, to protect my own heart from pride and lust. Because we figured if it could happen to him, it could happen to any of us. And I just have a sneaking suspicion any of you are sitting there saying, listen to the preacher. What he's saying is true. Doesn't matter which side you start on, the pride or the lust. The devil, if he can get the door cracked open, he will, he will swing it wide open and he will come marching in. So what are you doing in your own life to protect your own heart from pride? Protect your own heart from lust? What steps are you taking? You know as well as I do how many lives, how many marriages, how many families have been brought into a, a terrible point because someone didn't choose to keep tabs on those, to let God break in and do some work in those areas of our lives. And then, in addition to pride and lust, look at the next thing that Xerxes did. Look at his flimsy sounding board. He goes to these seven guys that he knows are gonna just say, sure, whatever you want me to say. This is a terrible thing, you know, and, and they didn't care anything about him. They just cared about themselves. And so the question that I've been asking myself and I'll ask you today is who is it in your life that could tell you, oh no, king, that is a terrible idea. Who do you have in your life that can tell you that with permission and, and you would actually listen and, and modify? I can gratefully say I've got several of those sounding boards in my life. Smaller groups, one or two larger groups. The larger group that I'm thinking of right now is, is our team that we call our lay elders. That's not paid staff. That's people who definitely carry the DNA of Faithbridge, but they are out in the community doing other things uh, in their uh, every days of life. The businessmen, one's a lawyer, a school teacher, a homemaker. And we gather once a month. And that team surrounds me and serves 
me in an honest way by speaking truth in love to me as a healthy, helpful sounding board. So I remember about eight years ago, I had been working on this plan, this thing that I wanted to roll out for the church, and it was just, it was, I was so excited. It was, I just knew it was going to be great. And uh, so we got to the meeting that I needed them to sort of sign off on it and, and put their stamp of approval upon. And I remember we, we exchanged our pleasantries and ate our little snacks and we sat down and we shared some joys and concerns and we prayed and, and then we got to the, to the business. And it was my turn and I went up to the, to the flip chart and I started drawing my pictures and saying, and then this and then this. And, and, and I was so excited. I remember I laid the whole thing out and I turned around just expecting one of them was gonna start the slow clap and say, that is brilliant, you know, and that's not what happened. Not at all. I turn around and there's this crickets. And finally, uh, one of the men, he sort of rubbed his head like this. And, and then he said, well, uh, Ken, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I think that's a pretty terrible idea. And I remember recoiling on the inside and saying, to myself, that's not a, it's a brilliant idea. What do you mean it's a, re, it's a terrible idea? And I thought, well, the next person's going to have better sense than that. And the next person said, yeah, I think I agree with him. And the next person, and the next person. Now, in that instant, what do you do? There's only two choices. You can try to power over it and bull your way through or choose the posture of humility. Listen to the Proverbs writer who says, there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Listen to the godly wisdom around you to save everybody, including yourself, pain. And I remember choosing the latter. Well, all right, gosh. <laughs> I really thought this was a great idea, but thank you, I'm glad that you've you know, been forthright with me here. Eight years later, I can look back and say, I'm really glad. Trust me, you all can too, okay? It was a good choice that we didn't go that, that direction. But the question that I, that I want you to chew on here as we're looking at this, this uh, chapter on King Xerxes is who is it in your life? I mean, name the person's name hopefully two or maybe three names, who if you were to tell something that's a terrible idea to, that you're convincing yourself it's a great idea, would look you in the eye full of truth and full of love and say, that's a terrible idea. And you would listen. And you'd humble yourself and you'd modify. If you can't name that person or two or three, then you need to say hello to Xerxes that lurks inside your soul. And you better watch out because you're headed for disaster. It's just a matter of time. Then you look at this fourth and final trip up. How he just loses it um, and uh, sort of erupts throwing his wife out, banishing her then forever, never to come back. As I was pondering this one, I was thinking, well, you know, 
I actually get off pretty good on this one. I, I think, I, I, I don't, Suzanne and I, we, we have our disagreements, but good heavens, that's, that's over the top. I'd never do anything like that. So I was feeling rather smug until the Lord brought to mind a scene from several weeks ago. I was studying with my younger son uh, one night doing homework and he had his vocabulary words. And you know how you have to give the definition and then you have to use it in a sentence. And the, um, the word was fussing. And he gave me the definition of fussing. And, he, and then he looked at me and he said, you and mommy are my fussing parents. Well, I was taken aback, and I said, well, William, what are you talking about? We're not your fussing parents. And plus, I'm a reverend. How about some respect around here? You know, and, and he smiled and affirmatively said, yes, and you're my fussing parents. And, well, Susan and I talked about that and said, you know, he does have a point, especially right in that transition time between sort of 5.30 and 6 p.m. I come whirling in the door and everybody's tired and everybody's hungry. And then we got to get reconnoitered and go off in different directions to sports or scouts or Bible study or a meeting. And, and it, we can get into this little, you know, thing where you're kind of fussing, right? And so we resolved, we, we need to do a little better on that. That's not a good example for us to be setting. And things were going along so well until this past week. And we were standing in the line uh, for dinner at the barbecue restaurant. And the four of us were going to have uh, barbecue there at the restaurant. Then we were going to take uh, dinner to some friends that we had said we would bring you some dinner this evening who had had something going on in their life. And <clears throat> so we're standing there and she, Suzanne, looks at her watch and says, okay, now the time is, we're, we're a little behind schedule. And, but here's how I think we can do it. We'll do this and then, and then, and we'll still get on time. And it really wasn't a bad plan. It just wasn't my plan. And so from within, I just instinctively said, no, 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 that's, that's not the best way. Here's, here's what we're going to do. Right about then, I hear this little voice from about yay high saying, fussing parents. <laughs> and Suzanne looks at me with a sparkle in her eye and says, all of this can be over right now if you'll just say, you are right, Suzanne. <laughs> which I did, and which is good for all of us to do, isn't it? To humble ourselves. Uh, and to grow. Now, some of you uh, hear that and you say, well, that's, that's a pretty lightweight illustration for something so major as what was going on with, Vash, or with King Xerxes and Vashti. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But, you know, as I was pondering, I was thinking, well, it's good to, to nip it there. Why? Because fussing can turn to outright griping and complaining, uh, can turn to even even more substantial fighting, which can turn to deep grudge holding, which can turn to terrible explosiveness that ends in something disastrous. And so even there I had to acknowledge as I was preparing the sermon, I got a little Xerxes in me. None of us see, none of us gets off scot-free on this one, right? All of us have a little bit of King Xerxes lurking around in our soul. 
At this point, you might expect that I'm going to wrap up by saying, so therefore, what I want you to do and what you need to do is you need to go from here today working to be more humble and think less lustful thoughts and get yourself surrounded by some true friends who will speak the truth in you and, you know, stop fussing. Um, but that's not the point of the sermon. You know why that's not the point of the sermon? Because you already know that. You're like, yeah, I know all of that. The problem is I can't do it. Yeah, see, that's my problem too. None of us can do it. We all know we should do it, but none of us can do it. Which is where the gospel comes in as such good news. Though you and I can't do it, there is one who can. One who did, and he is Jesus. And this is where the gospel is such good news because we, here, we, here we are. We have this great God who could have looked down upon us and our fussiness and our nonsensical, prideful, lustful, crazy living, and he could have banished us and said, you know what? I'm banishing you from my presence forever. I don't ever want to see you again. You're just the biggest mess-ups, nothing like what I had in mind when I created you. I'll move off to another galaxy, and I'll start over with some other people, and you'll go straight to hell. But that's not what he did. Instead, he showed grace, and he moved towards us, and he said, but I, you all are mess-ups, but I love you. And so I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. No, you can't change. Not from your inside out, you can't. Not no matter how much willpower you try to roll up your sleeves and have. You can't change yourself from the inside. There's only one way you can be transformed, and that is if I could get on the inside of you. And if you would let my spirit come inside of you and indwell you, my Holy Spirit pulsating inside of you, if you would know my saving grace, then you could be transformed. And even when you fail, because you'll still fail, you could be quickly corrected and righted and moving back in the pathway of righteousness. And that's why our holy God sent his only son to come to this earth, that son Jesus, who lived a life of sinlessness, the kind of life we all wish we could live, but none of us can live. And then he died the death of punishment that all of us deserved, but that none of us have to suffer if we would choose Christ as our substitution, as our replacement. And then he rose from the grave, which signifies to all of us that we who are connected to him by faith, we too have come into life. Life abundant on this side and life everlasting on the other side. And so my question is, do you know this Jesus? Have you come to know this Jesus? Incidentally, some of you, you're saying, well, yes, I know this Jesus. I came to know him years ago. Christians for centuries have built into the calendar of the year these rhythms that even sort of uh, contemporary churches are rediscovering. One of them is this season of Lent you heard mentioned a little while ago. What is that season of Lent? It's a season where historically Christians have said for the seven weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to get in touch 
with our depravity once again and put aside our rationalizing because we're all good at rationalizing and saying, I don't have any Xerxes in me. I'm not that bad. I mean, I might be a little bad, but compared to the next nine guys, I'm not so bad. Lent is a time where we say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to get in touch with my depravity. I'm going to look at myself honestly assess where it is that I am particularly fallen so that as we move towards the cross of Good Friday, I can crucify that once again and I can remind myself what Christ came to this earth to do, that I can look at his eyes looking at me in love saying, I'm doing this for you, that it'll melt my heart once again, that I can be done with that and filled with his spirit anew so that on that Easter Sunday, I can be raised to life again. That's what the season of Lent for centuries Christians have celebrated is all about. It's a season where we can get in touch with our inner Xerxes, I guess you could say, and put them to death so that Christ can live within. Now there's only one question begging to be answered. Where's Esther? You didn't mention her once. <laughs> no. And that's the intriguing thing. All of chapter one says nothing about her whatsoever. You know why? She had no idea all of this that was going on. And King Xerxes had no idea about a beautiful Jewish young lady named Esther. And yet, though he was making a wreck of everything, God's hands were still firmly on the steering wheel of time. And as we see, we'll see next Sunday, as we move further into the book, his hand of providence was still in control, guiding us forth. And so my hope is as you leave today, that you'll consider that reality as well, that we'll resolve ourselves to put to death our inner Xerxes, to live for Christ, but that we'll also keep in mind his hand of providence is at work, which is good news for any of us who have messed up, and all of us have. But I'm thinking in particularly, since we talked a little bit about it today, for those of you who particularly, you feel like I really messed up on this moral or this marital thing. There's a word of hope for you. There's a word of promise for you. That our great God knows you're coming in and you're going out, you're rising up and you're lying down. And he's still in control and he's still opening up a doorway for you to move from that path back into his great master plan. And that's what we're going to talk more about next week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the power of biography, of story, of just doing a study on a person, a group of people, really, that lived 2,500 years ago. Confirmed, not just in biblical history, but secular history, and certainly, though, enlightened by biblical history which enables us to see your sovereign hand at work, that you never fail us, that you never abandon us, that you never desert us, that there is always hope, and that you're always in charge, no matter how bad we might have messed it up. 
My prayer, Lord, is that each of us would leave today resolving to let you, Christ Jesus, live within us more fully, that we might more completely open up our hearts and our souls and our minds to your dominion, to your taking controls, to your putting your hands on the steering wheel of our life, that we would give up the folly that is so easy for any of us to give into, that folly of saying, I'll just do it myself. The King Xerxes that lurks around in each of our souls, Lord, help us to be done with him, to put him to death that you might live completely in control of our lives, Jesus. And I pray that you'll further inspire us, embolden us, empower us as we come back next week to see even more clearly how very much your hands are constantly on the steering wheel of time moving us forward. And that's a good word for us today. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. And welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Pastor Ken, who just kicked off our new series, Business Not As Usual, a study on the book of Esther. Welcome, Pastor Ken. Thanks. All right. So this was a great start. I love how we're transitioning to looking at the book of Esther. Mm -hmm. um, and But today we looked at several characters who are integral to her story right. as we're leading up to her. Yeah. Um, we did have some questions come in um, really about the content, but also um, some historical questions as sure. well. So I'm going to start with those. Um, the first one, um, this person wrote in and said um, they've seen some conflicting reports on the historical events in the book of Esther. How can we be confident that uh, historically this book is accurate? Right. Well, and the same could be said of any number of books mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. Um, there's, there's always, you know, uh, been naysaying literature coming along and saying that didn't happen. But then for every one of those, then you look and you say, but there are other sources that have said, yes, it did. And even archeology span that comes along, sometimes not as quickly as we would have, but then sooner or later, something's dug up and they're like, oh, looky there. That bears out the truth of what's in God's word. And so, um, so I'm going to fall in the camp of yes, uh, it, uh, it is true and we can rely on it. Uh, one of the extra biblical uh, uh, sources that we could draw on mm -hmm. is the writings of Josephus. Okay, is that the book that you referenced, referenced today? Okay. That's right. And which is a, uh, a popular well-worn source who he was not uh, a believer, but uh, just a secular historian, but uh, his works line up uh, very confirmingly. Mm -hmm. And if you want something just a little simpler, um, 
one of the sources that I'm enjoying reading and I've always enjoyed uh, is uh, from the biography series that Chuck Swindoll did some years ago on a number of the characters, and this one's on Esther. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's a that's a, a, a simple read as well that uh, reaches outside for some um, historicity as well. Okay, uh, tell us more. Uh, the question came around around King Xerxes. It, was he a Jew mm -mm. or was Queen Vashti a Jew? Mm -mm. No. Did they believe any? No, they were Persians. They, okay. yeah, no, we don't have any any indication uh, of. No, it's it's. Uh, well, I don't want to give the story away. Okay, so stay tuned. Next, stay you'll tuned. Have to, you'll well, have to be and here. You'll see how the Jewish story <laughs> comes into all of this. Okay. Um, but you'll see quite clearly uh, by the time we get into what, chapter two or three or four. Uh, he wasn't, mm -hmm. but he's going to be informed. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can't wait to hear it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's transition from really the historical context that you gave us today to mm -hmm. the application of how we can apply yeah. what we see happen mm -hmm. um, here. And we talked about pride, mm -hmm. and lust, and the counsel of many. many. Mm -hmm. um, and the question came around, um, what is going on in the soul of a believer who is really struggling with pride or lust, um, but refuses counsel? Mm. Is there anything that well, we can do besides pray? <laughs> well, I don't know that they are struggling mm -hmm. with it. If um, it, 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 what we want is to be struggling with it. Right. It's the person who has in his own mind or her own mind risen above it mm -hmm. and doesn't even think of it, mm -hmm. doesn't even see it anymore. Um, and that's the person who needs to hear us lovingly say, your Xerxes is showing, you know, and, and, but what do you do when a person just can't seem to hear that? Well, besides praying, well, certainly let's not discount praying. I think you have to be doing that. And, um, maybe gathering some other people to join you in prayer about that person and for that person, that there would be a softening. Um, on the, uh, if that's on the vertical level with God, on the horizontal level, um, there's conversations that we talked about, speaking truth and love. Um, you know, uh, Matthew 18 might indicate here's one way to go at it, go directly and then go with another person and then go with yet another person, a leader of the church that says, hey, there is a problem here and you need to see this. Um, uh, the secular term for that, and maybe if you thicken the group up just by a few more people, is called an intervention, hmm. where you sort of uh, circle the person and say, here is the truth and we're not letting you out of the circle till you hear us say, here's the situation. Hmm. Um, and some people respond to that type of intervention and some people even seeing all their loved ones and closest friends and, and most confidant, confidants will still shrug it off. And that's a sad thing. I think at that point, there is not much we can do. Mm -hmm. uh, pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit comes before destruction. And so either you can humble yourself or God will humiliate you. Mm. Uh, and so you have to choose it, which way, you know, and, and 
so my hope for this person or the person that this person's thinking about is that they that one of these would sort of just move one of the tectonic plates just enough that there would be a shift and something would start to give way and that, that maybe they would uh, be a softening. You know, I think what you said um, is really important to remember is that in order to have those conversations, there has to be a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like if it's your friend mm -hmm. or a coworker or someone, um, you can't just enter into a Hey, I think you're, I think you have pride unless yeah. you've really built a relationship, yeah, right. you know. And I think about sometimes mm -hmm. if people are difficult to deal to deal with, you want to pull, maybe you want to pull away from that relationship or try to avoid them. But really, in order to be able to speak into someone's life, mm. no matter yeah. how hard it is, yeah. you got to continue loving that person and sure. uh, being in relationship with them. Yeah. That's good. Um, you know, someone wrote in about the story of the professor that you shared today, which is a very impactful story. My professor. Yeah, yes. our, Dan's and my yes, professor. Yes, your professor yeah. that you... Uh, broke our uh, hearts. Yeah, broke your hearts. Mm -hmm. And it said if if even him, mm -hmm. he, which is uh, was such a man of God, mm -hmm. um, with such wisdom, uh, could fall or stumble in that way... Um, what would it take, what needs to happen to break a man of his pridefulness if they're blind to their own pride and they, they won't listen to counsel? Mm -hmm. uh, well, again, <laughs> and, and where it really gets tricky is when you have somebody who is a believer and a leader of believers, mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 pastor or in this instance a, a former pastor but then teacher professor book writer speaker on the circuit you know sort of thing um because what happens as best i can understand is that person has gotten so good at knowing the truth but mm -hmm. not feeling the truth not living it out in their hearts, but they can rattle it off. And the thing Dan and I had to work through is, okay, what we learned is still true. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> the instinct was we wanted to just tear up our notebooks from 15 years prior and say, forget all that. But it was good. It mm -hmm. was true. And it was coming, you know, it, 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 obviously he just, he, it was just coming from up here and God still used it. Um, but it was no longer working on him down here. And, and that's the problem. And so I think it's particularly important for those of us who are Christians, who are leaders of other Christians, to make sure that we are uh, surrounding ourselves with mm -hmm. authentic community um, who can speak truth to us and whom we will adjust our course mm -hmm. upon hearing what they say, mm -hmm. not discounting. I think he would say, um, if he were still here, um, I, I had outgrown all my, outgrown all my community mm -hmm. and, and I just didn't have anybody who was uh, keeping tabs on my life at least not to me. 
I think if you find yourself in isolation, isolation, yeah, the those devil things just yeah, really yeah, grow. Yeah, I I heard the quote uh, one time: if the devil can get you singled out, he will get you picked off. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the problem. So here he was teaching hundreds of students and speaking at conferences to thousands of people and signing autographs and so forth, but he was alone, mm -hmm. and. Uh, doing that life, you know, on airplanes and, and going off and, 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 and so he still knew all the right things. It just wasn't bubbling up and percolating in his soul anymore. Um, There's so many reasons that community is so important. So important. So important. Um, and um, so today we kind of got some historical yeah. context. Mm -hmm. Next week we'll be yeah. We'll start getting into the to the good more, part of the story next more week. More into the yeah. Okay. We'll see God's hand uh, of providence just really start to guide um, in these several critical turning points in the story that. Uh, it's just marvelous to watch what happens. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.